Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode, reporter Janelle Calderon has a story for us about the sharp growth of overdose deaths and substance abuse issues in the Hispanic community. Afterward, we jump to another health topic, the pandemic. Reporters Tabitha Mueller and Diane Ohm chat with Joey about getting a second COVID booster and changes to how the state reports its COVID data. At the end of the show, I head to the Nevada Historical Society and talk with Sherry Hayes Zorn about some of our state's symbols, something that is a personal fascination of mine. For instance, did you know that we have a state soil? I am here with reporter Janelle Calderon. Hi, Janelle. How's it going? Hi, Joey. Happy Wednesday. <laughs> Happy Wednesday. When uh, the audience is hearing this, it will not be Wednesday. Well, it might be, but... <laughs> so you worked on the story recently on an increase in substance abuse in Hispanic communities. There was a report that came out about this, specifically between the years 2019 and 2020, kind of that growth as we were entering the pandemic. So to start off, I'm just kind of curious, what are some of the most surprising trends that you discovered while you were reporting on the story? Yeah, so actually the trend that made me jump into it right now at this moment was when I saw that the overdose deaths among Hispanic residents in Nevada increased by 120% between 2019 and 2020. And that's a surge more than 55% from overdose that statewide during the same period. Once I was looking more into the report, it was insane to see that overdoses among those under 18 years old increased 550%. So in 2019, we had two deaths in that age group because of an overdose. And in 2020, we had 13 deaths in children. And then for 18 to 24-year-olds, there were 57 more overdose deaths. And that's a 158% increase from 2019. So, I mean, a lot, there are a lot of numbers that came in with this report. How does this increase as a whole compare to past increases going from 2018 to 2019? compared to 2019 to 2020? Yeah, well, it was shocking. And I actually spoke with some advocates and they said the same thing. So I was shocked because when we look at our non-fatal data, those monthly reports that I looked at, we never saw even a little tiny increase in Hispanic overdoses. So we never even saw a little tiny increase in the number of Hispanics going to the emergency room. They were shocked and kind of felt a little defeated. I mean, in 2019, some saw decreases in overdoses or at least a plateau in addiction crisis and the pandemic just shook everything up. I spoke with a program director with Freedom House Sober Living, and he told me that their classes and rehabilitation program encourages being active and social, you know, finding that support system, going to their meetings, but the pandemic shut it all down. So it was really tough. He told me that he even saw people that were recovered for over 20 years relapse during the pandemic. Wow. So the report, I think, highlighted for you that Hispanics and Latinos were disproportionately affected by this, but what were the overdose trends that played out among different ethnic groups in the state? Yeah, so in Nevada, the Hispanic overdose deaths make up about 20% of the overdose deaths. Nationally, Hispanics or Latinos individuals 
were lower than any other demographic group, but the overdose mortality rates in Black individuals increased nearly 50% in the same period, which is the largest percent increase. And a similar national study showed that American Indian or Alaska Native individuals, indigenous groups, experienced the highest rate of overdoses among the demographic groups. You know, one thing that I know about Nevada is that we've got a shortage of doctors, medical professionals in general, whether it's dentists, mental health professionals, physicians, general practice. How has that shortage of medical professionals played into the problem of overdoses? Yeah, federally, Nevada is considered a shortage overall in medical professionals, whether it's a therapist, doctors, nurses, as we know. And during the pandemic, we also saw that certain neighborhoods don't have clinics, don't have emergency rooms. So it's a big issue. And the bigger issue is like, okay, maybe you do have a clinic available, but do they have resources in a language that will fit for that neighborhood, for the people that are using it? Are they accessible? Do they accept Medicaid and Medicare? Do they have people that have empathy and culturally competent towards the people that they're dealing with? So it has a lot of factors. I think the state can work towards ensuring that we have enough providers to provide culturally competent, appropriate services to people like that speak the language and You know, so I think that's like a big picture thing, but like smaller level, like making sure people know what naloxone is. They know the risks about taking a pill that might not come from a pharmacy. What are some of the struggles that the Latino population, the Hispanic population in particular, are facing when tackling substance abuse? I think it's a little similar with any BIPOC community, culture, family, pride. It's a lot of the factors that contribute to substance abuse, to not talking about it, to having shame and stigma around it. I remember I had a family member who had struggles with mental illness. And one of the interesting challenges that we had in my family, my mom, who's American, grew up in America, really just wanted my brother to get medicine and get help. And my dad wanted to take a more spiritual and holistic approach to helping my brother. And I think that when, like, we talk about what does ensuring equitable access to care mean, it means cultural, culturally competent care. Again, with the language, Latinos or Hispanics may not feel comfortable talking to someone that maybe doesn't understand them. They fear that they don't have the money to pay. There is also fear, <laughs> like if their immigration status is not what they think should be or is right, or they feel like they have to be under the radar. Or again, just shame and stigma. They don't ask for help. They don't talk to their family. So one of the things that advocates are trying to do is have more education with schools and religious hubs where people do feel that it is a safe place to talk and have those conversations and hopefully people seek help before it becomes deadly like this. Mm -hmm. Are there any resources for these communities to help curb the problem that has arisen? Yeah, so I found a couple 
here in Vegas, we have Puentes. They've been really cool. We have the Care Coalition. We also have Chicanos por la Causa, which they have rehabilitation centers in rural Nevada. We have Freedom House for Sober Living has residency, detox, rehabilitation, classes and services, but they also have housing for people experiencing homelessness. And they also have outpatients so you can live your life and then come back in for your classes check-in and also the las vegas uh, metropolitan police department works with them they have their own program it's called lima which kind of deters people from the justice system if they get in trouble for possession of drugs and direct them to those community resources education and community outreach looking at all these community-based groups who have community health workers on staff making sure they understand how that process works. You know, anybody who's working in a community-based organization, that they have that information. That's the issue of how do you engage community, right? So faith-based community, our Catholic churches, the priests, the Christian-based churches, the school districts, everybody needs to be on the same page with the same information so that we can get it out there because that's the only way I know. I'm not trying to go one by one. We're never going to make it. Did you hear any stories from any individuals that you interviewed while reporting on this that kind of exemplified this issue best for you? Yeah, so I spoke with Jose Melendres. He's the executive director for the Office of Community Partnerships in UNLV's School of Public Health. He said that his father was a construction worker, and even after suffering a heart attack, the only time he would go see a doctor was if he had the cash in his pocket to see a doctor. My father was an example of somebody as a Mexican construction worker, even after suffering a heart attack. The only time he could go see a doctor was if he had the cash in his pocket to go see a doctor. And after you've had a heart attack, you're supposed to check in with the heart specialist every so often. And he never, after his heart attack, one year, and then that was it. He never followed up with the heart specialist again. And he passed away at the age of 59. And he passed away because he didn't have insurance. You know, And I, and I would wager most undocumented independent construction workers, whatever, Latino community. Uh, hell, even in the service industry, we have so many Latinos. If they don't have the right kind of insurance, they might not have access to this kind of stuff. You know, and, and then if they do, do we have enough, do we have enough Spanish speaking, culturally competent professionals in those areas that can work with those communities? My, I would say my answer is no. I know that's not directly related to the story of substance abuse and substance use and addiction, but it shows our healthcare system and what people's mentality is when it comes to seeing a doctor, even though, you know, the individuals without health insurance dramatically shrank after the state expanded Medicaid as part of the Affordable Care Act. Nevada's population of insured individuals still ranks among the highest in the nation. We saw a study by Kaiser Family Foundation that nearly one in five Hispanic residents in Nevada lacked insurance in 2020. You kind of talked about this a little bit at the beginning, but what, what made you want to pursue this story? Yeah, actually, I had this idea for more than a year. So, yeah, I spoke with actually the founder of Puentes. And he does a lot of health equity work. He mentioned to me, he's like, what we're lacking, not only mental health services in Spanish that are accessible for our community, but substance use services. And it's huge. And then the pandemic happened. And here we are. <laughs> yeah. Two yeah. years later. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm so glad that there's more conversation around it. Unfortunately, this study had to come out with these shocking numbers for the conversation to have more of a spark. 
right. Well, Janelle, thanks for reporting on this story. And thanks for talking with me on the podcast today about it. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Joey. While we're talking about the consequences of the pandemic, uh, we're still battling that virus itself. Yeah, and, and there are actually, there's now a second COVID booster shot that is available to, uh, to certain populations. That's right. And the state has changed how it's going to report COVID cases from daily numbers to weekly numbers. So we brought in reporter Tabitha Mueller to explain what that change actually means. Yeah, and we also have reporter Diane Ohm, and she's going to be telling us about those second COVID booster shots. I am here with reporters Diane Ohm and Tabitha Mueller, and you guys have both been covering some parts of the COVID pandemic. And I feel like right now we're at a place that's a lot different than we were at in January. It's now in April. Things have calmed down a lot with daily cases um, to the point where the state has changed how they're actually going to be reporting some of that data. And we'll get to that in a minute. But first, they also announced more boosters for people. So some people can now get a second COVID-19 booster. Who are some of those groups, Diane? Yeah, so it's a great news for everyone. Uh, that would be the people who are immunocompromised and or people who are over the age of 50 if they have received an initial booster dose at least four months before. According to the CDC guidelines, those who have received cancer treatment, organ transplant, or a stem cell transplant within the last two years and are taking medicine to suppress their immune systems qualify as immunocompromised. So I got my booster November 2020. 21, about five months ago. And that was, that was about eight months between when I got my original two shots and when I got my booster. How quick are these boosters wearing off? Are people like me who I'm in my 20s, should I be looking to get another booster in about three months or is are they have they not announced anything like that yet? So there was a study by the CDC and the vaccine is 91% effective in preventing a vaccinated person from being hospitalized within two months of getting a booster shot. But after four months, the protection falls to 78%. So it's enough to keep people out of hospitals, but the second booster shots would be a safer bet for everyone. So yes, you should get a booster shot if it is allowed in the next three months. Have they, have they announced that they're going to open up those second boosters to people in the next couple months? I think the plan is that it's going to gradually reach out to uh, younger demographics. And for those people that are immunocompromised and or over the age of 50, where can they get their second booster shots and when are they available? Are they available now? Yes. In Washoe County, the second booster shots are available at its indoor health district clinic. And there are also Community Health Alliance, um, which is also offering boosters and appointments that can be made through their website. And as for residents in the Clark County, the shots are available at its Southern Nevada Health District's main clinic located on Decatur Boulevard. All right, cool. Well, people should be uh, looking to get their second booster if they haven't thought about it yet. It's definitely something that we'll probably be continuing to do in the future as, as we kind of <laughs> wait for this pandemic to subside. All right. And so also with the numbers reducing quite a bit since January, when we were at our peak, the state has changed how they're reporting COVID data. They used to put out daily releases explaining this. Tabs, you've been looking at this. You've been keeping the data page going. How has it changed? So essentially what the state did is they are basically shifting from daily reporting to weekly reporting and releasing data on Wednesdays to reflect general trend versus every day. The changes are designed in a lot of ways to reduce 
the reporting frequently in that reflects the shift from public health emergency position to one sort of of disease surveillance efforts. It aligns with what officials describe as a more traditional communicable disease reporting for diseases such as E. coli, pertussis, diabetes, etc. So we have a COVID data page and it used to update daily. Obviously, if the state isn't updating daily, right. we're going to have- we're, we're not <laughs> updating daily. We're going to be, all of our data comes directly from the state unless it also comes from the CDC. We pull data from a couple of different places, but generally it's CDC and then the state. Because the state's only releasing data on Wednesday, that's where we're pulling from. You'll still be able to see the daily metrics because they're reporting you know, this many cases this day, this many cases this day. You just won't get those metrics until that Wednesday. Right Mm -hmm. now, we're going through an update on our COVID page to pare it down a little bit because the state also made some other changes like removing a county tracker, lessening some of the testing positivity rate reporting. So you are going to see sort of a redesigned page, but it'll have all the main elements, including our wastewater testing and some of the other things that we've done. One of the things that the CDC is asking people to pay attention to is like cases per 100,000 people. So we're also including that in some of the metrics that we're updating. And looking back, looking at the numbers, right, what did the numbers look like in March in the last month, 2022, in comparison to January when we were at the peak of the Omicron surge? So at the peak of the Omicron surge, that was about 6,410 new cases reported on average every day. In early March, we started seeing about 432 average new cases reported. So just numbers were really, really low when that announcement was made. Oh, the state also crossed a a benchmark of originally the World Health Organization had recommended a 5% threshold for test positivity rate is when people could maybe relax a little bit. The state passed that threshold as well. All right. Well, I'm sure you guys will both keep us updated on vaccines and uh, the numbers as we move into this. For me, I guess I feel like it's this next stage of the pandemic. I I don't know how you guys feel about this. Yeah, I definitely think it's like, I would think of it, we've reached this point of it being sort of endemic, I would say. And that's how the public health response is addressing it right now. All right. Well, Diane, Tabitha, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and chatting about this today. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Uh, All right, so this week we've explored some pretty heavy topics, so we're going to end the episode with something a little bit lighter. Uh, That's right, and with an interview that Joey was very excited about. Some say too excited. (laughs) It's one of my favorite topics. So we're going to be talking about exploring the quirky world of uh, uh, state symbols, um, something that I have somehow memorized uh, that stuck in my head since third grade. Well, I am here with Sherry Hayes Zorn with the Nevada Historical Society. Thanks for joining me. You're so welcome. It's nice to be here today. Yeah. And so honestly, this is also an exciting podcast because um, you're one of the first in-person interviews I've done since 2019. (laughs) So it's nice to get out of the house again. So we're talking about something really fun today. Um, We're talking about state symbols. This is a a personal fascination of mine since the third grade. I don't know why, but they've always stayed in my head. I know we have a lot of them. I think we have 26. And I did a video, I guess, in the 2019 legislative session where they passed neon as the state element, which I believe is the most recent state symbol to be added. Am I correct? Yeah, it is. That is the latest one. I mean, to start off, what is a state symbol? Why do we have them? (laughs) You know? (laughs) 
Well, state symbols represent what you consider unique and something that is of pride for your state that makes people want to learn more about your state or, or come and find these fascinating topics or little tidbits that another state may not have. So that's what I find fun about the symbols. And actually, children are the ones that have been over the last several years and several decades have been promoting state symbols and adding to the number. So why do we have them? Like you said, part of it is like it represents the state, drives people to the state. What makes them important? Well, I would say the symbols try to capture the character and show what makes Nevada unique and different. Like you said, neon. That's unique. That's Nevada. When you think of neon, it's sexy. And so that's a draw for people. And they think, oh, Vegas. So that's definitely something that not every place has. So actually, in 1893 is when they had the Chicago Fair. They were doing a selection of state flowers and the idea of wanting to know what were the flowers of each state. And that was how state symbols and emblems first started. And then in the 20s, the Federation of Women's Clubs throughout the country were trying to select state birds. And so then that became a thing, and Nevada didn't select our bird until 1967. But, I mean, we we had chose our seal, we chose the flag and the model, of course, early on in 1866, but it's, I think... People take pride in these things, and they want to know more about their state and keep adding to it. And correct me if I'm wrong. The state bird is the mountain blue jay. Am I right? Yes, it is. See, I, I still got it. <laughs> good job, good job. <laughs> um, and, and the first state symbols that are added when a state becomes a state, I'm assuming are its flag, it, you know, probably its motto, its seal. Are there any others that kind of are like every state has this? I'm assuming like state bird and flower are also those are pretty the pretty standard ones. You got your flower, your animal, maybe your fossil. How are they chosen? Who chooses these state symbols? Well, groups and individuals might push them forward, but ultimately it's our state assembly and legislature that will actually submit them as bills that get um, put forward to the governor and then they get approved and they become part of our Nevada revised statutes under miscellaneous state symbols. Goes through the legislative process like any other law in the state. My understanding is it's not supposed to be political. It is supposed to just represent the state and everyone is supposed to come around and it's supposed to be a good thing, a happy thing. But what's the best of our state and what what we can take pride in to promote our state? Do you have a favorite state symbol? I love the ichthyosaurus. I think that's my favorite. And just the fact it's so unique, and it's at the Berlin Ichthyosaurus State Park. The official name is Lizard of the Shoshone Mountains. That's just a whole, it's a magical name if you think about it. And and there are 53 or 54 intact skeleton remains, fossils that were discovered there when they started doing digging in the 50s. But what I think is neat about it is that no one even noticed it initially because it was mining. And then it became this great treasure trove and the state acknowledged it and then it became a state. So it's it's a really cool piece and they're, and they're quite large. Mm-hmm. I also think the ichthyosaur is really cool. But I have also been fascinated by the fact that we have two state trees. We couldn't just pick one, apparently. (laughs) Can you tell me a little bit about why we have two state trees and what they are? 
Absolutely. So what we've got are two, and it's over different decades that we've got the, the with the tree. We have the single-leaf pinyon pine, so that was designated as a state tree back in 1953. And then we have the bristlecone pine, which was designated in 89. And so what's unique is that the single-leaf is the only known pinyon pine that is in the United States. So that makes it a very unique tree. But then also the bristlecone is being the oldest living organism dealing with a tree in the world. I mean, the average here is 4,000 years old. So, I mean, just imagine all the history it's it's witnessed over its time. And, and so there are states that have more than one, maybe dealing with trees or flowers that they feel are really significant and of importance, and because the bristlecone and the in the pinyon pine are very unique, I, I can see why they added a second one to showcase the uniqueness of these trees. Mm-hmm. I was thinking when I saw that, I was like, oh, we're just trying to add more state symbols. And then I saw that Texas had like 50 state symbols. And I'm like, of course, Texas has that many. And California has like 40 something. (laughs) So we're not even close to them. But I do think that like some of the state symbols seem really unique. I find also really fascinating is the state tartan. Explain to me what a tartan is. Absolutely. So the tartan actually was designated as our state tartan or or plaid Mm -hmm. back in 2001. And we were at that point the 14th state to adopt a plaid. Really? I didn't realize there was that many. I I was surprised too when I was looking at this. But I mean, we do have an amazing amount of Scottish American heritage. And Mm -hmm. I think back when Bob Miller was governor, he recognized the first Tartan Day. And so April 6th every year is National Tartan Day. And so I thought, oh, this is wonderful, perfect timing. (laughs) Then it became a law in 2001 by Governor Gwynn, recognized it, and every year nationally everybody recognizes plaids. Well, what's interesting about plaids is that they actually have to be created, they have to be unique in their design and their pattern. They have a unique Nevada plaid. Yes, and it represents the state as a whole. Each of the colors represent different parts of our state's heritage. So red is for the Virgin Valley Black Fire Opal and the Red Rock Desert. Yellow is supposed to be for the sagebrush or state flower. Uh, White is for the formations of the snow on the, the mountains of the Sierras. We have the blue, of course, represents the water and also our mountain bluebird. And we have uh, silver and blue within it represents the state's colors. And my understanding is that there's intersections, eight threads, I guess, and eight threads represents, you add that up, represents 64, meaning that the state was created back in 1864. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a lot of symbolism in it. And I... I know they put a lot of effort into coming up with what it means and how it represents the state. It's very unique. One other state symbol that I also love is we have a state locomotive, uh, which I have actually seen. It's an Ely, correct? Yes, it is. It's engine number 40, and it's a beautiful piece. It's associated with the Nevada Northern Railway and the East Ely Depot and Museum. And it's it's actually was built in 1906, but it was with the railroad that was in Ely from 1910 until they closed in 1941. It was used just to um, haul 
passengers. It really has never been altered. What's our most unique state symbol that you think? Well, say we've talked about the tartan. We've talked about the locomotive, the bird. Something that's unique is our gems. Is you're dealing with the your precious and semi-precious gems. <laughs> and I find that very funny too. We have to have a precious and a semi-precious. We can't have just one. <laughs> well, and then truly, the, I guess the distinction is if it's something that's a little bit rare mm-hmm. and has more value versus other is is somewhat the distinction, or if it's something hard to find. Mm-hmm. So, like the the precious gem is the black opal or the Virgin Valley black opal. And then turquoise is our semi-precious. But turquoise can be very fragile because it's very thin veins. Mm. And then you actually, when you harvest it and then you cut it to cabochons, it can break easily. And But they're, they're amazing pieces. And turquoise can truly be found across all of Nevada and, and actually has the history of the most mines active, defunct of any of the Western states, which is an interesting little fact Mm. associated with turquoise. But turquoise has always been used in ceremonies as Mm. religious items that have definitely meanings. And of course, with the Native American jewelry of the 20s and 30s. Well, and I, I realized we didn't mention silver. We are the silver state. Correct me if I'm wrong, the state medal. It is. It is a state medal. And so actually it was designated the state medal in 1977, but there actually was a dispute whether or not maybe it should be copper because of the copper mines, Ely. But the fact, it represents the long history of the state and with the discovery of silver. So silver won out in the end. All right. Well, Sherry, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. And uh, thanks for talking about all these fun state symbols. It's one of my favorite topics. Well, uh, thank you for asking. I, I I think it's a fun topic, and and I think kids and adults find it fun to learn more about our state's history. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Sherry Hayes-Zorn, Janelle Calderon, Diane Ohm, and Tabitha Mueller for being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by Joey, with additional editing help from Michelle Rendells, Riley Snyder, and Jackie Valley. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen, and email us with questions, comments, concerns, pictures, or evidence of jackalopes, or whatever else is on your mind, at joey at theenvyindy.com or jacob at theenvyindy.com. Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.